following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, we're looking uh, this morning in Exodus chapter 33, uh, the middle of the account of uh, Israel's um, sin with the golden calf and uh, the process of seeking uh, forgiveness. So we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 17, but I'm just going to read the first six verses to start, and then we'll kind of uh, read as we, as we work through the passage. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and any other kind of ites that you run into on on the way. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So we'll, we'll read a little bit more in the story, but that just kind of introduces the, the topic. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that, the, of course, the Israelites created this idol. Moses was up way too long on the mountain, and uh, they, they thought God and, and Moses had abandoned them, and they needed a new God, so they forced Aaron uh, to make a, a, an idol, an image of a golden calf, and they worshipped it, and they said, this is our God. This is who we're going to trust to lead us from here forward, and God sends Moses down the mountain, uh, and first he threatens to consume them in his wrath, and Moses intercedes and prays for them, pleads, God, uh, do not destroy them in your wrath. And God uh, shows grace, uh, first off, by not giving them what they deserve. They, they deserve to be destroyed because of their idolatry and sin, and God withholds his anger and wrath. Uh, but, but so far, that's all they've gotten, is <laughs> not destroyed. And uh, at the end, as we looked last week, uh, Moses goes up a mountain a second time to intercede again on the behalf of Israel after he's, he's wiped out the idols, he's destroyed it, crushed it, ground it to powder, made them drink it. He dealt with those leading and those uh, who, would, who would not stop sinning. He brings order to the camp. Uh, but still, there is the need for forgiveness. And Moses says he goes back up on the mountain to plead with God that God would forgive, would atone. And in fact, Moses offers himself as a, as a sacrifice because Moses knows that, that, that there, there's this requirement of shedding of blood, of a life, in order to make atonement. So Moses uh, offers up his own life. And God says, no, uh, I'm not going to take your life. You're not, uh, you're not, your life is not enough. Thanks for the offer, but no. And every person is still responsible, accountable for their own sin. So still no forgiveness. Right? Um, 
And, you know, forgiveness and, and, the, and the idea of grace is really one of the great themes of the Christian faith, right? Um, we celebrate, we already sang about it this morning, and we'll sing some more about it later, that there is mercy and grace and forgiveness in Christ. And, and as you look at this passage, as this all gets drug out and seems so slow motion, uh, we might look at this and say, why is God so reluctant to forgive them? Uh, is, this something, is this something of God's nature that it's hard for him to forgive? And maybe we think of our own situation where sometimes for us it's very difficult to for, forgive. And uh, we may hold on to things for a very long time and maybe never actually forgive those who have hurt us. Is God like that? Right? Is God a God who holds on to these things and he just can't get over this whole idol thing and he's stewing? Is that what, it's, is that what this is about? Uh, does he need Moses to explain to him the best way, right? And because God doesn't know what to do. Well, well of course not, right? We would know, no, that's, that would be bad theology, right? God, uh, as, we, as we will see, it is God's very character and nature to forgive. Um, but one of the problems is that because uh, our theology so focuses on grace, so focuses on forgiveness, it's easy to make it a true doctrine, but one that's very shallow and superficial. Uh, it's, it's easy to reduce God into some kind of cosmic vending machine who dispenses forgiveness without any personal interest. Right? We sin, we know we deserve his wrath, we, we push the ask forgiveness button, and boom, grace drops out of heaven and fixes everything and it's all better, right? Uh, is that kind of your vision of what forgiveness is? Another problem where we can distort or misunderstand forgiveness is that we uh, can seek forgiveness for all the wrong reasons. Uh, did you know that you could seek forgiveness for a wrong reason? Maybe not a wrong reason, but just with a wrong focus. Uh, not really, you know, you can miss the real goal or point of God's grace. And so... This, this long, slow-motion process of God forgiving is helping Israel understand the, the gravity of sin and the significance of God's forgiveness, that they wouldn't take it shallow or lightly, that he wouldn't have this view of God as this cosmic vending machine. Oh, we sinned. God, I'm sorry. Boom, everything's better. Right? It doesn't work that way. God's grace is, is much deeper and more significant than that. Uh, his grace is not just a cheap trinket that he dispenses without any real concern or care or relationship. Um, so, so God's teaching them through this process. Uh, and, and, of course, we want to learn what the lesson is. What is the real goal of grace? What is the real ultimate purpose of God's forgiveness in your life? Uh, so that's what we hope to unpack with God's help this morning as we understand and look at this passage. So let's go back to the beginning of the story. And it starts off sounding really good. Like, if you've been following, if you've been reading this along, you know, uh, they sin, Moses pleads, they get some forgiveness, they, you know, they get destroyed. God goes back up, he pleads for uh, atonement. Uh, God says no, but there's, there's, there's some, a plague. And then, and then comes the chapter 33 where God says, hey, Let's pack up and go. Get up, go from here, take the people you brought out of Egypt to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to your offspring. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out your enemies. 
Go to this land flowing with milk and honey. At face value, it sounds like a casual reading would look like things are back on track, right? We're back on, we're back on route. We're, we're headed to the promised land. God's promised to send an angel to lead us. He's promised to destroy all of our enemies. He's, you know, he's going he's gonna to take us into the promised land. And we're going to receive the long-awaited promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob many years ago. Um, it all sounds great. Until the very end when God says these fatal words, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Uh, God puts them before them a very interesting offer. Um, and I'm not so sure. The, the Israelites actually did quite well here. Uh, it's some, something of a test that they pass. I'm not sure we, we might pass. And it really is a test of, of vending machine theology. Right? Uh, you know, what is your idea, Israel, of how this works? What do you hope forgiveness will give you? Right? He says, look, you're not getting what you deserve. I didn't wipe you out. You are getting what you don't deserve. And if you know kind of the Sunday school definition of grace, that's kind of what it is, right? Getting what you don't deserve. And he says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. The promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, guidance, protection, abundance. Like if you're into vending machine theology, this is perfect. I push the forgiveness button, poof, everything's better. We are back on track. Um, is this how forgiveness works in your life? Probably growing up in, in, in most of us in a Christian environment, or at least uh, in the West where Christian values are kind of part of our worldview. Uh, we, we know that we have this concept or idea that sin does have consequences, right? That sin can mess up your life. In fact, oftentimes when people have bad things happen to them, one of the first things they will think about is, wow, did I, what did I do to deserve this, right? I must have sinned somewhere that God's sending trouble my way. Uh, and uh, that may or may not be good theology, actually. Um, but we know that sin has consequences. And, and oftentimes it can result in disaster in our life. Uh, Romans 6 tells us this, that if we give our, present our bodies to sin, we become a slave to those things, and they control our life. Um, and just more practically, it can, it can mess up your life. I remember when I lived in Colorado, uh, we lived near an Indian reservation, and while we were there, they opened a, a casino, of course, <laughs> um, and, and it's a big, huge place, and so everybody's all excited because they could go gamble. And I remember we're going to, one day to a gas station and filling up gas. And this was back in the old days, because I'm old, when you actually had to go inside the building to pay. Remember those days? Some of you are like, wow, that's, that's harsh. Um, had to go in and actually give money. You actually had to be face-to-face with a person, give them the money. And there was this cashier there, and I was talking to her a little bit, and I didn't know her, but just you know, saying hi and how's it going. And she, she started sharing with me that she had gone to this new casino, uh, on the, on the day she got paid, and in one day she, spe- she spent her entire paycheck. And she said, now I don't have a thing to live on until I get paid again, right? Well, that's kind of the consequences of sin. You do stupid things, you sin, and there are consequences. 
And even if there are no outward consequences, maybe our sin is more private, maybe we don't experience those kind of outward consequences. Um, but there is, for most of us, there, there is guilt that goes with sin. Uh, and it's kind of the lie of sin. We, we get this, we're, t- we're convinced that if I do this thing, if I sin, if I pursue these things, that, that I will find joy and happiness. But it's a, it's a lie of Satan. And we all know that when we actually fall into sin, we do not experience joy, at least maybe momentarily. But long term, it's not joy, right? There, there's guilt. Uh, and, and we feel bad about ourselves. And uh, a lot of people struggle uh, constantly with these feelings of guilt. And so we, we want forgiveness. But what, what is that really about? Why do we want forgiveness? Well, oftentimes, I know from my own life, uh, I can't speak for you, but in my own life, what my guilt is about is I feel bad because I'm not the person I thought I was. Right? I think I'm this good person. I think I'm all together. I'm Mr. Pastor Guy. I'm a good Christian, right? And I sin. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted with a, uh, an image of myself that I don't like. It makes me feel bad. Well, I'm not such a holy guy. I'm actually kind of a jerk. <laughs> and I can be mean to my wife or to other people. And I can say really cruel things. And, wow, I'm not such a great person. And so I feel guilty because I don't like the person that I am. And so I want, I want forgiveness because I want to feel better about myself. You see how that kind of guilt, how rooted that is in selfishness and pride. That's not seeking forgiveness for the right reason. It's wanting just to feel better about myself. And of course, vending machine theology is great for this. Push the button, ask for forgiveness, drops out of heaven. I can feel good about myself because I can put all that behind me. I don't have to be under guilt anymore. And I can uh, be a jerk, but I can be a forgiven jerk and everything's good, right? Is that what forgiveness is really all about? I don't think so. And I think what God is doing here for Israel is he's, he's wanting to show them that forgiveness is so much more than that. Um, and it's interesting that as, as, as confused as Israel often was about God and theology, this one they got right, right? God says, I'll send you to the promised land. I'll send an angel. I'll make sure and you know, wipe out your enemies. It's going to be happy, good times. I'm going to keep my promise. But when he says to them, I will not go with you, what do they respond with? Eh, no big deal. Who needs God anyway? As long as we, as long as we got milk and honey, who needs God? Is that their response? No. It says, when they heard this disastrous word... Right, to them, this is bad, bad news. They mourned, and no one put on his, his, his ornaments. For God had said, You are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments, your jewelry. So the people stripped themselves, and, and from that day onward, from Mount Horeb onward to the Promised Land, they did not wear their jewelry. And there was a sense of mourning in the camp because they had they realized that they had lost something extremely precious. Unlike modern man, modern people, the people of old times were not so easily fooled. Uh, and, and, you know, I just, I just think if, if this had happened to the church today and God had said, you know, I, I'll consume the church, I will consume you if I go with you, so here's the deal, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your lives comfortable and easy and good. Uh, you know, I'm going to take care of you, but I'm not going to go with you. We'd be all like, eh, cool, that's good. 
they saw it as disastrous news. They, they had huge sorrow because they realized that they lost. And if you remember, and this, this has a lot to do with their whole worldview and their concept of how life worked. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain and he didn't return for a, a long time, 40 days, they, they became fearful and worried that God had abandoned them, that God had left them. And what was their cry? Make for us another God. Right? They lived with the sense that, that the world was a dangerous and unsafe place and they needed a God to lead and protect them. Right? It wasn't okay. All the blessings in the world, all the gifts of heaven and earth could never be a substitute for the gift giver. Right? All the possessions of the world could never be a substitute for the gift giver. They knew they needed God. They needed His presence. They needed Him with them. And so for them, it wasn't okay to move forward without God walking with them every step of the journey. Uh, and I believe that for, for the people of Israel, this was their first really huge step towards finding forgiveness. Because right? they came to the point of realizing what their sin cost them. And here's one of the main points of the passage. What does sin really cost us? What, what is the ultimate consequence of sin? Is it that you feel guilty? Is it that your life is inconvenienced? That maybe you, know, you don't have a paycheck for the rest of the month because you spend it on something stupid? No, that is not the ultimate or greatest consequence of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is that you have lost relationship with God. Right? And that's the, that's, the, that's the price of sin for the world. The, sin lives, uh, the, the world lives separated from God. And, and, and without, without grace, without, uh, without Jesus, that separation is eternal. But you live forever without God. There is no loss greater than that. And the people realize that they've rejected God, and because of that, He has at some level turned away from them. Now, uh, he still guides them. He still is, in a sense, their God. So he hasn't completely turned away. But he is not going up in their midst. They have lost something of God's active, living presence with them. And they understand that, that their, their sin, their stubbornness, has caused them to be prone to sin at any moment. And God says, my, my wrath would consume you if we just go on like this. You know, of course... God's got another plan we'll see in a minute. But if we go on like this, we're not going to make it 300 yards because in a moment you're going to sin and poop. I'm going to wipe you all out. End of story. And that would be sad. So, so I'm not going with you. So here's the first question. You know, why do we seek forgiveness? And when you sin, do you feel this sense that your sin has separated you from God? You may say, well, I thought I was a Christian and when I'm, you know, I, get, I get Jesus, I'm saved forever. That is absolutely true. I believe that. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. His salvation is way bigger than you and you can't mess it up by sin. Praise God for that. But what you can mess up by sin is your relationship with Him. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that God ignores sin in our life. Uh, scripture tells us that we can quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can smother God's active living presence in us. Of course, He doesn't leave us, but, but the relationship is damaged. Right? We do not experience or know His presence in the same way. 
That should be the thing that we most agonize about when we sin. And that's really the first step to receiving true forgiveness. When we become much more concerned about losing the giver than we are about losing his gifts. I would say that, uh, I would go far as to say that if we're seeking forgiveness purely out of selfish motives because we don't like the feeling of guilt, I would say that's probably in itself sin that needs confession because we're, we're missing the whole point of what our salvation is about, what grace, what the goal of grace is. And beyond that, I think we're at a point where forgiveness is not really possible because sin is ultimately a relationship issue. It is about breaking our relationship with God. And so forgiveness has to somehow involve restoring and bringing back together, repairing that damaged relationship. And so until we come to a point of grieving the loss of God's presence in our life and the brokenness of that relationship, I think forgiveness will be very elusive uh, for us. So, so the Israelites are at a good point, a good place, because they, they are aware of what has been lost. And so the, the passage continues on in verse 7. Uh, let me read, and you can, I think we have that yet, follow along. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each one would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Uh, This seems like a rather random, bizarre, and out-of-place story. Um, And it, it, you know, is this picture, this kind of habit of Moses of setting up this tent of meeting, kind of his private prayer room outside the camp. Um, uh, but when we understand what's going on here, this actually makes great sense. And while it may have been a regular practice of Noah, of Noah, or Moses, of Moses, um, the, the point here is that, uh, that while Yahweh, God, is no longer in the midst of his people in the camp, the relationship with, with Moses hasn't changed, right? Moses still has this direct personal relationship, access to God. He's uh, described as the Lord speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, this doesn't mean that God showed up in a theophany that is in some kind of appearance that, you know, when Moses would enter into the tent, some vision of Jesus was in there in a chair and they would sit and talk. It wasn't like that. The expression face-to-face is a Hebrew idiom that simply means close, personal, intimate interaction. Uh, Moses would go in there and he would pray. And chances are it was just an empty tent. And he would kneel down or stand, I don't know, but he would pray and and he would pour out his heart to God and he communed and fellowshiped with God through prayer. And God would somehow speak to him. But again, probably not in an audible voice, maybe, but more likely just in, in his heart and in his mind. Um, 
But the picture is that, that Moses had direct, personal, intimate fellowship and communion with God. But it was no longer available in the, in the camp. He had to go way outside because God, God was not coming in. <laughs> you want to come talk to me? You've got to leave the people. You've got to get away from that sinful people. And I'll, I'll meet you out away from the camp. Um, and what's significant in this is that Moses still has exactly what the people have lost. And on a regular, ongoing, daily basis. Uh, and by the way, just a thing on God's presence, people might think, well, I thought God was everywhere present. How could, you know, how could he not be in the camp? Well, God, it's true, God is everywhere present, but he is not everywhere available or accessible. He's everywhere present. He's everywhere. But he doesn't make himself available or, or accessible to everyone or everywhere. Uh, and that's certainly the case here. Um, so, so here you got this picture. So, and and it's, I love this picture. So just get this. Moses gets up and goes, I'm going to pray. Uh, I think we should do this. Hey, I'm going to pray. And everybody stands up and they goes to the front of their tent to the door. And they watch as, as Moses walks out through the wilderness after his little tent of meeting. And they're all watching in, in anticipation. And the, Moses goes in the tent and the cloud of, of pillar of God's presence falls on the tent. And everybody goes, wow, that's way cool. And they bow down and worship. Right? Interesting picture and image. And if somebody wants to seek God, they could actually go out there and they could talk to Moses and say, I have a prayer request. And, and Moses would go in the tent and he would, he would pray for them. Right? So they had some measure of access to God, but it wasn't direct. It was through Moses. What I think is fascinating about this is that I think many people, uh, many Christians have uh, wrongly think that this is the normal, like this is normal Christian life. Right? That there are out there these really spiritual, godly people like Moses. And certainly Moses was a spiritual, pious saint. And there's those select few like Moses and you know, Mother Teresa or somebody who you know, they are super spiritual. And they have like this direct channel with God. And so the rest of us just, just watch from a distance. And we kind of cheer them on. Hey, go Moses. And they, they have, do their little prayer thing. And they, they like have this thing with God. And we just experience it kind of vicariously through them. Right? And that somehow this is the normal Christian life. Because certainly God does not expect this for everybody. God surely doesn't want everybody to have their own tent of meeting, does he? I mean, God wouldn't be like face-to-face friends with everybody. Uh, surely that's only for like these really spiritual people. And so we may feel like, well, I, I'm not that spiritual, you know. I only pray three hours a day, and I only fast twice a week. Surely I'm not good enough, right? And so we have these pictures of what somebody must have to do to have this kind of special connection and friendship with God. But, but to understand that is to really misunderstand exactly everything that's happening in this passage. What this is all about is simply this, that Moses still has what the people just lost. Because God intends this for everybody. And the people were aware of it. They knew that this kind of relation, this this kind of intimacy and connection of knowing God face to face was exactly what they had lost when God said, I will not go up in your midst. Um, This is exactly what God wants for Israel and, and is absolutely what God wants for his church. And, and it is ultimately the goal of grace. Right? The goal of grace, the, the goal is not just that you would be forgiven so that you don't feel guilty. 
Not that you would be forgiven so that you would be holy and blameless and pure and clean. Forgiveness does those things. But that is not the ultimate goal of forgiveness. It is not the ultimate goal of grace. The ultimate goal and purpose of, of God's grace and forgiveness is so that you can be in this kind of face-to-face, friend-with-God relationship with the Creator of the universe. Isn't that amazing? That's what God wants for every one of us. And we know that because uh, the New Testament tells us that every one of us, our body is literally a tent of meeting. Right? We don't have to go outside the camp, right? And I'm going, good, because I don't even live in a camp, so it's a good thing. We, we don't have to, like, go to church. We don't have to go to, like, some really cosmic, spiritual, cool, hip retreat place that has, like, good coffee and, and you know, meet God there or go climb some mountaintop and have some, like, place where we meet. No. Because here's the deal. Your body is a tent of meeting. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, His tabernacle, His tent of meeting, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Amazing. You are a, a miniature temple and God's very presence dwells in you. That's what it means to be a child of God, to be a believer, to be saved. And of course, sin can, can damage that relationship. It can block off access. But he is there. And his desire is that all of us would have this kind of intimate fellowship and communion with God. Uh, he does dwell in our very midst, in our very heart and soul. Uh, so that anywhere, anytime, 24-7, we have direct access to God face-to-face as, as, as to talk with somebody as talk talks with a friend. What Moses had is available to every single one of us if we are in Christ. You may say, well, that may be true, but I just don't feel it, right? Like I tried this and I go and I feel like, you know, okay, God's there and, you know, I just feel nothing. Well, here's the thing. You know, I don't know that Moses actually felt anything. Right? And he goes out to the tent, he walks out there, he goes in, it's just a plain old ordinary tent. It's not glowing in the dark. It's not radioactive, Right? There's no cool holograms of Jesus. It's just dark, empty tent. And he bows down and he prays. Just like you and I do. Right? And it's an act of faith that he knows God's presence is there as an act of faith. And he communes with God. He fellowships with God. And, and God speaks to him. But probably, again, um, on the mountain, you know, he got the stone tablets. There, there was a voice. But we don't, Scripture doesn't say that he got that in the tent. I think God just spoke in his heart just like he speaks in our heart. The still, small voice. Uh, as, God, as Moses met with him. It is ultimately an act of faith that we claim the promises of Scripture. Right? Now, of course, if you don't feel it, if you feel like, I tried to pray to God and there's just like this barrier there. It's like, this, it's like you know, the, the, the prayers go up to the ceiling and they hit the ceiling and bounce down and crash back onto my head with so much force it knocks me out. Do you feel that way? Um, Okay, now sin can be a problem, right? Part of the deal is maybe you have the whole wrong idea about forgiveness and you've turned God into a vending machine. And yeah, he's not present because you're not dealing correctly with sin. That's possible. But if we follow what he teaches us in this passage and we find true grace and forgiveness, we've got to know and trust and believe that God hears every word and he is deeply interested in everything that we pour out to him in prayer.
And he, he is responding. He is speaking to us. And he's ministering to us. Because that, 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 that gives kind of a scene. And it, this is inserted here just so that we understand actually what's happening in the next section. So verse 12, it continues on. It really picks up the story that we left off in verse, verse 6 with this little, this little uh, intermission. And it really gives us the point of it all. It says, so Moses said to the Lord, so he's in the tent, right? So we get to pull back the veil. We get to spy in and, and listen in to one of these encounters as Moses is in this tent of meeting, having this prayer dialogue with God. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this, is, this nation is your people. By the way, God, I love this conversation. So he's having this conversation as a friend to a friend, right? He's being very brutally honest with God. He says, God, you're not helping me out here. You want me to go? You haven't told me who's going with me. I'm not buying this whole angel thing, right? That's not what I'm after. And, uh, and what's more, you keep telling me it's my people. They're not my people. They're your people, He's having this conversation with God. And and so verse 14, And God said to him, get this, God says to him, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Just like that, God answers his prayer. And and Moses said to him, I don't know if Moses didn't hear the first time or what, but he says, he says, Look, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Uh, ultimately what Moses does, he goes into the, his prayer tent and he pleads for grace. Moses is not giving up. right? And he, he likewise is, does not accept this. Like, God, you do not send us up with your angel. I don't want your angel. right? I want you. Right? And he says, I want to know who you're sending. And this really goes back to Exodus chapter 3. And if you remember at the burning bush, God calls Moses and said, Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt to bring my people out of slavery. And Moses says, uh, no, you're not. Uh, I'm not going. Who am I? And, and God says, don't worry. That's not about who, who you are. I am going with you. Remember that? I will go with you. Well, now Moses is saying, you know, God says to Moses, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, uh-uh, uh-uh. Right? I want to know who you're going, who's, who you're sending with me. And it needs to be like either Yahweh or, or Yahweh, or, or Yahweh, right? That, those are the choices, right? You can pick any of those three. And, 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 and in his prayer here, Moses actually prays for three things. First, he prays that God would return and dwell in the midst of his people. And he says, as I, don't send us up unless you come in, in, into our midst. Secondly, he prays that God would do this on the basis of his favor, 
or as we'll see in a moment, on the basis of grace. Thirdly, he prays that God's glory would be evident to the world when the world sees that these are God's special people, His special possession. And the only way they can know that they are His special possession is if God lives in their midst. And really, his prayer ultimately is is an amazing appeal to grace. Five times in these few verses, Moses talks about God's favor. Uh, And the word favor in Hebrew is the exact same word that could be translated grace. Uh, It depicts a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has a need, normally from a superior to an inferior. That's a, a linguistic definition of grace. A heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has a need. Normally, in fact, in Scripture, almost always from a superior to an inferior. Um, Moses is very aware that they do not deserve God's help, that what they deserve is destruction, that what they deserve is to be sent, that really to go to the promised land and get the promised land in itself is already more than they deserve. And certainly Moses is very aware that they don't deserve God's presence in their midst. But Moses appeals on one thing and one thing alone. He says, if we have found favor. God, if you are a God of grace, then show me your ways that I may know what kind of God you are, that you are indeed a God of grace. That's and my own paraphrase of that verse. This is the base of it. The only hope we have, the only hope we have is that God shows His kindness and favor to us. God, on the basis of Your grace, I pray, please forgive us. Please come back and be among Your people. And amazingly, just like that, God answers His prayer. Ultimately, grace and forgiveness for God is an easy thing. But God could not do this until it was clear to Moses and all of Israel what this was really all about. There's about two huge fundamental things. First, it was about God restoring relationship, not just dealing with sin. It's about bringing his people back into communion and fellowship with him. And secondly, that it's made possible only by God's freely given gift of grace. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. There was nothing even in in Moses' prayers and petitions and pleas that forced God to do this. It was by grace alone that God said yes. And I love that Moses, you know, God says yes, and Moses says no. Let Let me just make sure we're real clear on this. What I'm asking is, specifically, you've got to go with us. right? You have to go with us. Because, you know, you won't be glorified unless people see that this is your special people. And the only way they'll know they're your special people is if you are present with them. And again, second time God says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. Why? For you have found favor. You have found grace in my sight. It is on the basis of grace. There there is, finally, right, after almost two chapters, uh, finally, there is forgiveness and grace. Right? And again, uh, God wants to make it super clear. This is not vending machine theology. Right? This is a, a personal living God who loves his people and who longs for relationship with them. And he doesn't, 
He doesn't dispense grace as some kind of trinket that, that fixes their, their life circumstances, but does not repair and restore relationship. So you can sum it all up this way. Without his grace, there can be no direct, personal, and intimate communion with God. And with grace, there can be nothing less. Right? Without his grace, there can be no direct, personal, intimate communion with God. And with grace, there can be nothing less. So uh, as we close, just a couple of questions to reflect on. Uh, you know, what, what is your theology of forgiveness? Right? When you sin, kind of what's the process you go through? It's like, oh, I blew it again. And, you know, we do do it often, so it does get kind of commonplace for us because for me it's kind of a daily thing, right? And it's easy to think, well, yeah, I blew it again. Uh, push the ask forgiveness button. Drink, drops out of the machine. Ah, good, I'm good. Right? Is, that, is that what it is? Or is there the sense that when I've sinned, I have damaged my relationship with God? Even though I may have sinned against my wife or friend or, or whatever, Ultimately, as David said, when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, he said, no, it's, it's against God I have sinned. I have ultimately damaged, and as a result, I have lost something of God's presence in my life. Right? His, his availability, the fellowship, the communion. Do you struggle with guilt? Right? I'm going to help you out here. I think you should feel guilty about your guilt. <laughs> Does that help? Right? I hope so. Right? Right? Guilt is an enemy, and, and it's rooted not in God's glory, it's rooted in my glory. Right? We need to see that kind of pervasive, ongoing guilt as itself a sin, because it's more worried about my image and my reputation and how I feel about myself than in understanding that it's not about me. Right? I'm already a screw-up. I already know that, so I don't have to worry about that. That's easy. It's ultimately about my relationship with God. That that becomes more the focus and emphasis, then it's easier to receive grace and realize that that relationship is restored and, and grace is not even an issue. And I don't have to be guilty because it's about my communion and fellowship with God. And, and we cannot bring guilt into that relationship. That, that would be a sin. Right? And we need to just confess it. And... Restore the relationship. Find healing in that relationship. And turn back once again to intimacy. And lastly, just to think about, do you have this idea that, you know, that there's like really spiritual holy people out there um, and that your only real deep connection to God is somehow through them? Uh, that, that's not what God intends for you. Right? He, he has given you, each of you in Christ, your own special tent of meeting God's very presence, the Holy Spirit, uh, through whom the Spirit mediates the very presence of Jesus and the Father. Jesus tells us in John that, that both God the Father and God the Son have made their home, their residence in our hearts through the Spirit. Do you, do you go regularly to that, that place of meeting? Uh, do you deal with sin? But beyond that, do you, do you commune and fellowship with Him? Do you hear Him speak to you? Do you... Do you meet with God face to face? And is your relationship with one that would be described as one, as someone with his friend? And that's what God wants for us. And he's made it available through the blood of Jesus. We just need to, we just need to go there. Right? We need to make it a 
daily practice, a constant practice to go. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.